welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now today we're taking the idea of clothes a little up and going into the spectacle business. Would you like to introduce yourself, Jamie? Sure. Um, I'm Jamie. I'm the co-founder of Banton Frameworks, um, a Scottish spectacle manufacturer based in the outskirts of Glasgow, Scotland. Tell me a bit about yourself. You're obviously a young man, spectacle business. Seems unlikely, or is it? Um, I think that spectacles or eyewear, as we refer to it, is uh, a fashionable and increasingly exciting space for, I suppose, menswear, but also just how young people want to put themselves across. But and I suppose, interestingly, that's not really actually why I got into it. Um, the, um, I suppose the, the thing with eyewear is that, you know, we can wear it since, you know, from five years old right up till the end of life. And depending on what you want from that, it can say a lot about you and it can also just be a functional item. So it's quite a broad topic, to be honest. But no, I... Uh, I don't actually wear glasses yet. I can if I want to, but my, my prescription's so mild that I don't actually need to wear them. But my, however, my business partner, Lucy, she does. Uh, that's how it all started. Count yourself lucky. I've been using glasses since I was 14, I think, and it's a curse. Though, as you say, it is a part of uh, menswear. It is a styling option. It is a signal, signal of something. We'll get back to that. I'm curious though, how did you get started in the business? Sure, so uh, Lucy, my business partner, uh, we studied together at Glasgow Caledonian University, which is one of the, the big unis in in Scotland, I would say. And it had a design course. I just, I'd moved down to Glasgow two years prior to study design at a college, but then I wanted to pursue it and get my degree. So I joined the the design course um, there, which is where I met Lucy, and in her final year at university, uh, her final year project was to design, she chose to design glasses. Um, so at the time, we I was doing my own separate project, but I was looking at what she was doing, and we were really close at the time in terms of friends. We actually started um, a relationship so we ended up getting together in the last sort of stages of our course uh, but the her, her, her I just couldn't get past the idea or couldn't get it out of my head that she was we were she was trying to make frames I was kind of getting more and more interested in helping her make frames we didn't have a clue but basically we joined forces and came up with the idea of making our own eyewear at the time to fund what was going to be our master's course, which is like a fifth, like a later stage of education, post-grad. And we just never stopped. Uh, we just became obsessed because I knew and she knew that it could be done. So sort of very briefly, within about two or three months, we basically said, right, we'll go to London Design Week, which is actually happening right now as we speak, uh, coincidentally, because it's been 10 years pretty much to the month that we've been doing this. So we took our the idea of making these frames from whatever materials we could get our hands on and sell them at Design Week. So 
to make that happen, <laughs> we um, we were breaking into the university at night to use the machinery and equipment to be able to make the frames so we could make them. So we were, over summer, we were basically sneaking into university to learn how to make glasses frames. And what materials were you using at the time? Anything we could get our hands on. We were actually um, applying to several companies at the same time, pretending to be various uh, people, like basically making up identities to get free sample packs of materials because we were still students. And they would send us free samples and um, we'd basically like accumulate that and use that to make frames. So that could have been um, veneers, like veneered woods, like really expensive, like high-end veneer wood to uh, different kind of sheets of um, decorative plastic, including acetate. So we were trying all these different things and we just were like, oh, that would look cool. Let's let's make a frame from that. But what happened was we hadn't, we still hadn't really figured it out. It was the night before we had to leave for London. We didn't have a single frame. We booked a space. We booked a stand. We poured all of our savings into... Mm booking this stand and we had to go so i was working a part two part-time jobs at the time and like managed to get the stars to align took the time off took the week off drove to london i was making frames whilst lucy drove like in this passenger seat and basically like poured ourselves out of the car set up our stand in london design week at one of the the shows which i think is actually stopped now but it used to be called design junction and we um basically started making frames there and then on the press night because we still didn't have anything to sell. And this um, became something of a, a spectacle, excuse the pun, and we managed to sort of land ourselves a few features in some design magazines completely by accident. Uh, and we managed to cover our costs and that week we drove home with our tail between our legs and we reconvened and said, well, do you want to do that again? And I said yes, and we've never looked back. How many years ago was that? Ten years ago, about two weeks ago. Well, that's good to have kept going. I imagine you've sort of got more of a hang of things in the intervening years. Yeah, we've we've learned a few things. Please say yes. <laughs> we, um... <laughs> we... It's kind of past that point now, but the, there was a real phase, I'd say probably like the first five years, where like the, the, the ball of string, like the, 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 the learning phase was just so intense. Like I just, it was basically like either I was working part time or I was making glasses or I was sleeping. It was like this baptism of fire and, um, you know, like that saying like 10,000 hours to become an expert in something like, we, we just devoted and still do devote everything to learn how to make them. Obviously now we have the, the capabilities, we have the machines, we have the experience, the expertise. But I think on a wider sense, whenever you're trying to make something anywhere, it always helps to have surrounding industry. Whereas when we were learning in the mm -hmm. formative years, you know, from 2012 right through to about 2017 or so, we were just out on an island. We, we were just... We were in the, well, obviously, not just figuratively, but we were literally a way off out at sea on our own, learning how to make this product that 
we knew we could make and we could make and we were making but um yeah it was hard but i think though that barrier to entry is what kept us going because we knew that no one would probably either want to follow in our footsteps but if they were they were welcome to join us and alongside us because i think we could probably would have learned from each other a lot you know i imagine frames look a lot simpler than they are to actually construct yeah but i mean what sort of machines were you sneaking into use at the university anything that could well and how could you make them in the car yeah so (laughs) the basis of you could argue the basis of design or or manufacture is basically either the addition or the subtraction of materials to add value um so you mentioned that they're quite complicated like it's kind of like I know that you, from a menswear perspective, like panels or tech or master patterns for cutting. You know, when you lay it out on a table, they never resemble the, the assembled garment once it's stitched together. And eyewear is similar. There's a lot of uh, hidden angles. Angles are everything. There's a lot of hidden undulations in terms of curvatures uh, and volumes that all work in harmony to make the frame not only comfortable on your face but also look good from the outside as well um, and that varies from market to market um, I'm, I think when I mentioned uh, earlier before we started the podcast that you spoke with Nick from Fram he uh, you know you mentioned um, you touched on the Asian market for jackets for example and how the different fits are in Japan versus European markets, and it's, it's, it's the same with eyewear. Uh, mm. I just recently wrote an article on that about the craniofacial differences between Asian and uh, Caucasian genetics and how that affects the frame. But yeah, going back to your point about how they're very simple on the surface, that was the trick I fell for 10 years ago. <laughs> I said I could make those. <clears throat> Excuse me. The fact that people are all different shapes, heads, I mean, it's not just a, an Asian-European thing, surely, I think pretty much everyone I see has a different shape yeah. head or size. I uh, I can agree more. Um, I've got one. I'm one of these spectacle wearers who has what looks like quite a narrow nose, but I've got a really lo- uh, wide bridge. So where the, the, the frame rests on my face actually needs to be quite wide for me, even though visually my nose looks quite narrow. Um, conversely, people have what looks like quite a narrow bridge, but maybe a larger nose, but that's just like one aspect. Um, there's a there's there's some there's a lot of detail to how frames are measured, but that's obviously a lot to do with like the dispensing aspect, um, which opticians have to deal with. Whereas from our end, which is like the the coal face, if you will, of making and designing frames, um, we're trying to cater for not as many people as possible because you can't really do that not without sacrificing like true fit and true comfort uh, but it's a case of like creating a spectrum of frames within our collection for example ours that are different sizes and different lengths different widths different lens widths things like that there's also other details like for example the height of the pads which rest on your nose the asian market for example um, need taller nose pads because they have a shallower bridge uh, so there's, there's there's a lot of little details that add up that kind of go unseen to the untrained eye. This was obviously something you picked up pretty quickly after 2012. Um, 
so what happened? You got back to uh, where you were making glasses at the time. Um, you had some orders. What happened next? So, um, I believe you restored a Jaguar S-Type. I actually did, yes. Yeah, so I... I, I, I how, how did you know that? Oh, just research. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. The reason why I picked up on that and why I remembered that you'd done that is because... Um, I think the closest thing I can relate to is like working on an old car. It's a labour of love, and I think that only sane people would have quit. I think that after London was probably like when you started on that car, you just kind of said, no, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make it work. And basically what happened was we said... We can do this. We're gonna we're gonna figure out how to do it. So every time we made a batch of frames, we'd try and we'd sell them. We'd use that money, put it straight back into buying a machine that we knew we needed but couldn't afford, or had to save up, and basically found ways of getting around cutting or how to cut a frame without something that you need to cut it, or cutting an angle on it, making our own machinery, which I did for quite a while, um, making our own tools, and basically it was like a laying the bricks as we walked over them. It was basically a case of make a batch of frames to the best we could, sell them, buy another machine. And that went on for years uh, until we could start affording or investing in substantial equipment, which is the, the more we did that, the, 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 the jumps got bigger and bigger. The frames got better and better uh, to the point where we not only had surpassed what it was we set out to do, but we were then in control and actually creating things that uh, I believe to be beyond what most people expect from glasses. Um, be it certain details, uh, just, you know, things I was talking about, nose pads. And uh, it, it became rather than can we do this to know, like, how well can we do this? And... That's the direction we've been in now for the last several years, and it's it's been worth all of that dedication to since London of learning how to do it all because we're in the very unique position that we can make as many as we want, however we want, when we want, um, and that that's a nice place to be when we don't we make quite small products, we don't need a lot of space, which has allowed us to do what we do. Uh, we haven't had to employ hundreds of people or, or outsource any any of it. We've actually taken more and more on ourselves. Um, so I think that describes the journey since London. It kind of it skips over quite a lot in terms of the time, but I think the the, the mission was always the same. It was to, to to create eyewear that was unique and that goes right back to the beginning with Lucy's university project. It was it was to create eyewear that you couldn't find everywhere. Lucy wanted to explore the idea of individualism. Uh, glasses at the time, the fashion at the time, and it still is the fashion now, acetate had come back in a big way. Thick rim frames, that sort of 50s style. Uh, and it, we we knew looking at that material, which is a beautiful material, which we can, we can certainly discuss, acetate is... It's a glorious thing. It, it, it's a very natural looking material. It is made from nature. 
and we knew that from our design background that the way that could be sculpted, the things that we could achieve with that uh, was endless. And that's something that we're starting to really kind of explore now. I'm always astonished when someone starts making something which they might not actually really know how to make. When you got started, was it YouTube or was it, how, how did you actually sort of work out how to make frames? Um, a lot of it was, yeah, do you know what? YouTube was a big part of that. I think one of the things with um, having come from a design background is like visual learning. Everyone obviously learns differently through words or sound, video, uh, and we just absorbed. And a lot of it was actually self, a lot of it was quite intuitive because the one thing that because we'd never made it before, we we found our way. We made our way. And there'd be people out there who'd been doing it all their life who would disagree or, oh, I never even thought of doing it that way. It was completely fresh eyes. Uh, and I think that's what allowed us to keep going. So a trial and error for sure. There was a lot of sleepless nights. But I think as well, when you don't have startup capital investment or even a lineage, like none of, none, neither of our families are involved with optics. Um, it was a complete baptism of fire, but I think that in a way that was our biggest strength because there was no constraints. So like we, we could say, like, oh, no, we're going to make it that way or let's try that. And it, it led to some really happy accidents. Some accidents too, but <laughs> some accidents. Tell me about a couple of the happy yeah, ones. Yeah, well, the happy ones really are, for example, I think it was just... A lot of it was in the process, like surface finish. Like we, we, we'd made our own um, polishing machines. We'd figured out how to, to form the frames. Uh, like instead of having pneumatically driven um, clamps that fold, uh, form frames, we would use, uh, do it by hand. Um, there's also like things like how much you heat a frame. So like we would, we'd heat it, you know, for example, longer. It was meant that the frame could like stay in that position. It's like learning the properties of the material. Uh, things like riveting, which I'm obsessed with, because uh, frames, there's different ways of attaching hinges to frames. Uh, we use traditional rivets in our frames uh, that that hold the hinges on. We've we sourced a machine all the way from America, from 90, it's like a 1976 uh, radial riveting machine. It was used to like uh, form form and dome rivet heads on like World War Two planes. It's it's. Um, I can't remember the exact year it was made, but it, it's a glorious machine and it, it produces these beautiful domed rivets on the back of the hinges uh, that are just like absolutely like pristine. Whereas if you use, for example, like a, a more traditional uh, lever, arm lever tool, it would like bend the rivets over slightly and they're like kind of like skewed off. So like they're, they're, they were more bent over than rounded. So it's just things like that that we, we learned over the years that I think is what all adds up to make our frames what they are. What would you say your motivation was when you set out, sort of in retrospect, 10 years later? Can you sort of put yourself back then? And what was it? What was your drive? Was it one day I'll sell enough to drive a Bentley or was it something better? I think there's a couple of motives. I think the first one was we knew we could do it because they are still to, like you know if someone set out to make a t-shirt i think they could do it i think any i think uh, most people could achieve that but we wanted to do it with frames but then i think broader and more deeper rooted than that um we 
optics is a very brand brand orientated very mass market industry it's very polarized excuse the pun you've got big big companies making a lot of frames sorry <laughs> a lot of, lot of frames on mass in their thousands but then there's also people like how it used to be done in what would have been called a working opticians back in the 40s who would actually make a frame or adjust a frame specifically for you and that could be done too that was the service it was very much a cobbler a butcher a candlestick maker that kind of mentality back in the heyday of optics and in the uk and further afield and we knew that somewhere in between there we could live i don't i didn't set out to be make frames and become a giant but at the same time i didn't start making frames to as i say like you know beautifully carve bits of one-off acetate into bits of art i knew that i would end up somewhere in the middle in that spectrum and but with the, the intention of making that exciting and uh, unique and doing it in a way that enticed people or got people excited about buying and wearing glasses because like I said you could wear them for a very long time and I think that the one thing I would say with mass market eyewear is that there's everyone there's solutions for everyone you can buy a pair of glasses for five pounds you can buy them for 500 or even more so it's you know a thousand pounds it depends what you want but I think the ability to get attached to a particular frame or a particular garment, shoes, is a, is a special thing. And there are people out there who are serial um, optical obsessives who are into particular eras of frames. And I, I think that I want to make frames that fit into that obsession for people who have numerous pairs that wear a particular frame for particular occasions and I know that it's not just something that you buy twice a year sorry uh, once every two years that because you need your eyes tested and you need to update your prescription uh, it was it was always a lot more than just making things that held lenses it's, it's a self-expression I think that that was the bigger drive behind it all you find that the market for crafted goods has changed in the past 10 years that people appreciate and are more willing to to buy expensive crafted products now i think so it's funny there was an advert that used to really bug me it was about eight years ago samsung launched, launched a campaign and they said oh crafted in their campaign and i was like wow i didn't know that like a mass-produced item could be considered as crafted but then I think everyone has a different expectation of what that actually means. And I think in, unless you've, not that I have yet, but having like a bespoke suit made for you must be a really special thing. I've had a kilt made for me. I know what that feels like. I have my own kilt. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, I wear that once, twice a year for Kayleys or weddings. And it's a nice feeling. But crafted... And the depreciation for craft, yeah, I think that has improved. I think that has changed because of, I think it's like, as, as we all know, like fashion circular comes around, you know, all that again. And I'm, I'm not, 
old enough yet to have experienced it multiple times, but it does happen. Things come around, and I think that craft has gone through a revamp, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. I think that the access to starting your own business, for example, has become democratised. More people can start craft breweries or making things. There's more opportunities than ever before through Etsy, eBay, uh, Shopify, and I think that there has been a, an increase in awareness, but also a, a drive for finding things that are a bit different, you know. And I think that's one of the, one of the helping factors behind what I do. I think that answers your question. Yeah, I think you're I think you're very right there. And of course, the sort of uh, sustainable business mm-hmm. thing now, where people want to buy once and buy better, mm-hmm. or at least want to buy more expensive stuff, means that. They probably are more open to buying more specialised stuff. Yeah. I, which can only benefit those in that business. Absolutely. I think one of the things as well, like someone, want, I can't remember where I heard this, but the internet has allowed like-minded individuals who would have maybe never otherwise have met. They get, it allows them to hang out online and geek out about the things that they love. And that could be literally anything. And I think that's what's, accelerated um, people's interest or passion for example like sourdough baking or there's a guy I follow on Instagram who has like a collection of vintage carrier bags like that's his hobby I know and for us like we have our (laughs) pool of frame makers who we deeply admire who make incredible frames from huge huge companies down to like one off little makers there's a guy in um Bangkok, who we follow, who makes these amazing frames from Buffalo Horn. And I think that the internet has a lot to answer for in a good way for that. Because before, if you think about it, our only access to media before was what we could see on TV or what we could listen to on the radio. And that makes me, that does make me sound old. But it's all changed now. Well, yeah. (laughs) Uh, By the sound of it, you sort of work with other small companies as well. There's a sense of maybe a sense of community in being small. Would that be right? I think so. I think it's that underdog mentality, not only that joins, uh, connects other companies who make other things, but also I think what attracts like-minded customers as well. The frame business or, well, the optical business sort of as a whole is kind of, uh, there's a sort of evil Death Star hanging over it. Uh, the massive uh, L word company that basically controls, what, 90, 95% of the world's optical business. Yeah. How What's it like being an independent company in the shadow of the Death Star? I think it's exciting. Every, every story needs a villain. I think that it does. <laughs> I think that, you know, there are always going to be, be big players you know, if you look at, for example, Brewdog in the UK, they started not far from where I grew up in northern Aberdeenshire, and they're taking on giants, Heineken, you know, these massive beer companies. And going back to what it was you said earlier about the appreciation for craft, I think that I think that there's room for everyone. I think that rising tides lift all ships. I think there's some big boats out there, but I think there's also room for speedboats. And what I mean by that is that if you can be nimble and be small and talk to an audience in, in a 
unhonest and I hate to use the word, but authentic way, producing something that you believe in, I think that you can make a living. Uh, and for some people, more than just a living, they can create jobs and opportunities for other people, which is eventually our intention. You find that people understand the difference between what you're making, which is obviously small scale, local, and I mean, I'll go back to calling it the Death Star. I mean, they have licensed a massive amount of brands yeah. where they produce frames in mainly low cost countries to a not well to a certain quality which might or might not be very good but people perceive them as being say jaguar frames without really knowing where they came from or what they are yeah it's a funny one the l word the death star i mean if for those for people who are listening if you don't know, uh, there's a very large company in Italy, obviously, by the name of Luxottica. And they, as, as as you said, Nick, they, they run, they pretty much run the show. They have a monopoly on the optical market. They own or make frames. They have licenses for multiple brands, you name it. You know, Gucci, Armana, Prada, uh, Armani, Prada, uh, Ray-Ban, you name it. Not, not only that, but they also own the shops that sell them, i.e. Pretty much pretty much any yeah. brand that is a fashion brand but wouldn't obviously be making frames. Yeah. And they also sell they also own the shops that sell them, i.e. the sunglasses hut. So they they run the show. And the the lens makers as well. Yeah, they, they own the lens quite a few lens manufacturers as well, especially the brand labels that people uh, are sometimes led to believe are independent but aren't they're part of a bigger chain there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in the, in the optical market for sure which is i think what's driven um what would be considered independent chains to appear uh you can see them all over the place um for example in america warby parker they in america their optical market's a bit different because obviously it's very driven by like insurance and things like that it's like uh, health insurance so they get a lot of like uh, funding or vouchers to go towards their eye care. Uh, but the problem is the frames there are so expensive, even compared to, to ours. But they, Warby Parker set out to change all that and basically went direct. They, they, they don't have distribution or whatever. They, they're, they're like their own setup and they, they, they have multiple pra- independent practices that sell their own frames that just come straight from the factory that go to their stores and we've got equivalents of that here in Europe uh, the likes of Ace and Tate and companies like that but again you're, you're, you have to watch because those guys are doing what this is kind of what Luxoric are doing, but just at a smaller scale. They're 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 mass producing again. So you think you're going into an individual practice, but you know maybe that frame's made in, in again in the hundreds, if not the thousands. Um, so what looks like a small independent place is actually part of a bigger a bigger uh, game game plan for some of these companies. So I, there's there's a lot of tiers to the optical market like that, and I think. Uh, it's just like anything, clothes, you know, jeans, boots, any kind of clothing company. I think people, especially, you know, for you listening, anyone listens to podcasts, that a bit of digging goes on. You have to kind of do your research to know who's who's who and what they do, why they do what they do, where they do it, how they do it. 
Uh, optics is very shrouded in that sort of mystique, though. There's a, there's a, a certainly a, a lot of rumours or is cloaked in a, an, an enigma, shall we say. So there'll be uh, forums just for people into frames as well, so that they can share all these insider tips. And uh, there isn't, there isn't. The best, you know, the, the, it's funny you say that. That's what, something we've actually not struggled with, but been a bit baffled by with optics. There's always a forum for something, yet optics seems very, very sparse. It's very strange. There's a lot of people on Reddit who will, like, fangirl a particular optical brand, Ray-Ban, or Purcell, who are both owned by Luxottica. Um, and oh, this model worn by that celebrity in that film, and like, oh, they've stopped making it like that, they don't do glass lenses anymore, this kind of stuff. You hear people, and these threads go on for years, but the conversation has to be about like a brand or a frame. It's never like, oh, this kind of frame or this shape of frame. It's very like niches within niches. And it makes it quite hard because, for especially for small brands, because you you don't you didn't get a frame worn by Tom Cruise in the early seventies in a film. You you're trying to make your version of or your version of that 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 shape or or do or use a particular material. And I think though that that can be quite liberating because you're not held to a, an old thing, but you still you're trying to come up with a new thing. Um, and I think that 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 thing for us right now is provenance that sets us aside because obviously there's not very many people who do what we do here in the UK but also how we do it uh, and that's you know we try and let our quality speak for itself rather than ride on a, a name because we're still very young as a company. What sort of value do you think people put on frames? I mean now nowadays I see guys spending a grand on a pair of high-end mm. boots or crazy money for various items of clothing what are people willing to put into a pair of uh, spectacles i've sold frames for like 900 pounds spoke but then i've also made frames in batches of 25 or 50 and sold them for 135 uh, but there's people out there you can buy literally glasses literally buy glasses for less than £10, which I just find unfathomable. I don't understand how that's possibly putting food on anyone's table. But then there's what I would describe as precious metal that just so happens to hold lenses that are costing thousands of pounds. Um, I think value perception on eyewear is a bit of a funny topic for me. It's, it's a bit of a, not a sore topic, but it's in the UK especially, it's notoriously... Bad, not bad, but notoriously sceptical when it comes to eyewear. I think stories like the the Death Star, as you called it, Luxottica, stories like that of the monopoly, inflated prices can make people feel like they're being scammed. And I think it's a sad thing because there are some people who really, really take pride in their eyewear and really love that process of almost reinventing themselves they, they get to put something the first thing that people see when they see them first is their glasses when they see them for the first time after a year or after covid or after they've been to the optician and it's a reinvention and for some people that's a really important part of their identity and other people it's this sort of begrudging biennial investment 
and they feel that they're like getting scammed into buying lenses that just so happen to help them see. It's like this is your vision, and you're like you're you're like you think it's some sort of um, sort of ploy to trick you out of your money, but if you without these things you couldn't read the paper or your phone or answer emails, and I find it very strange that people, especially in the UK, seem to not everyone, but there's a sort of a mixed opinion on eyewear and. Don't get me wrong, we've, we've got some customers. There's a guy, uh, Tim, that's his name. Tim, one of our best customers. He's bought 14 frames from me in the last 12 months. Wow. And like, he just loves wearing... <laughs> that's, not just, that's not just a good customer. Yeah, he's amazing. Like, it's, I sent him... Uh, oh, yeah, it's, it's an addiction for, for sure. Like, there was a, got to a point where I felt bad. I was like, I should probably meet this meet this man. He's away down south and I've, I've sent him... Uh, a bottle of whiskey recently, actually, to thank him for such support. But he he just genuinely loves wearing glasses. But then, on the flip side of that, going back to the the perception of eyewear in the UK, you know, there's, there's people who oh, I've got to get my eyes tested, or they don't like that process; it's too clinical. They feel the frames are very expensive, but then they're more willing to spend double, triple on a pair of trainers that don't last any longer than a year. It's just bizarre. It's, it's, it, but the thing is, though, it's different strokes for different folks, and I, I understand that. And I'm not after, I'm not after, I'm not, I'm, it's not that I'm not interested, but our customers aren't people who look at it as a solution. It's not just something that you have to do because you need to see. And that those, those people are, are the right fit for what we do. Uh, but there's different markets for, for different people. Some people just don't take care of their glasses which I experience regularly because I have to fix them. Uh, there's people who sit on them. There's people who lose them. There's people who treasure them. There's like uh, special display boxes you can buy, kind of like um, not something too dissimilar to like a like a, something you'd see in a shop. It's a leather-lined box for keeping your sunglasses in. Like some people are just obsessed with these things, and that that's exciting because those people get what we're doing. The process, the, the the craft, the skill that goes into making these things, because it isn't just something that holds lenses. And there, there, I know there's a lot of people out there who agree. Some people would like to have better glasses. Um, maybe they have to, especially with the, the cost of living right now, that they're, they're maybe holding back a little bit. But you know, buying new glasses is an exciting thing. And um, as I said earlier, it can be a real sort of. Uh, identifier as to who they are and how they want to put themselves out into the world. It must feel great to have your work being appreciated to such a level that people take such care and buy so many of them. Yeah, I, I tried really hard. I think this is one of the the things that I try and work on almost every day. I get emails, multiple emails, and I, I try and actually not only let them know that there's only two of us in this business, Lucy and I, together, making our way in the world. But the fact that you've actually bought something that's left our hands, and it's actually one of our um, strap lines, it's you have literally bought these glasses from the hands that made them. If there's something wrong or you need them fixed, we'll do that for you. And yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a good feeling because I think there's a, a disconnection with, especially with larger companies, but just in general with, between Customers, the people who I cater for, 
and also about the makers and the people who make them. And I think that the closer we can get to having that conversation and letting them realise that these came from our workshop, that this doesn't happen regularly unless you're buying from makers like us. You know, it's not something that many of us do. And the more people I can cater for that appreciate that, the more people who can, who understand or recognise that, Things can be made here to a high standard by people who are willing to dedicate 10 years to, to and more to learning how to make it, uh, the better. I'm curious, sort of looking a bit back, at the start, 10 years ago, you were making frames or trying to make frames of basically anything you could get your hands on. Where are you at today, material-wise? So, <laughs> moving on from uh, sample packs of uh what was interior design veneers. We source our acetate now from primarily from Europe's best manufacturer. They're very well known. They're renowned. They're based in northern Italy. They, they've been making acetate for about 100 years. Uh, they, they're the closest people to our workshop that make what I consider to be the best acetate. Uh, they, if there was someone down the road or in England or somewhere nearby that made acetate, I'd give it a go. But unfortunately, there aren't. So we, we use the Italians. They're very good at that. Um, there is another company in Japan who we've sourced material from. Obviously, it's coming from further away. So we're quite conscious of that. We haven't actually made any or sold any frames made from that material yet because it's kind of in the, the research phase. But the, the Japanese make their version of it. They use it. They make it a slightly different way. It's a lot harder. So, for example, polishing takes longer. It's got different tendencies. So that's something that we're figuring out. But uh, yeah, that's where our material comes from at the moment, Italy. The, there's other components, for example, hinges are German. Uh, the German hinges we use are second to none. They, they've got anti-loosening hinges. They don't go floppy after three months and you've got one temple that's really... Sorry, when I say temple, I mean arm. One temple's tight and one's loose, for example. Uh, but they, they, uh, the components all come to our workshop. The acetate arrives at our workshop. And basically from that sheet form, it's a big sheet. It's about two metres long by about a metre wide. It arrives as a, to our workshop doors and it leaves as a fully finished spectacle frame. Which is something that I think, again... Actually, sorry to go back, but you mentioned um, obviously about companies and you know how how they they operate or how companies put themselves across. The, there's a bit of a phenomenon in watchmaking that's going on right now about made in Switzerland, and uh, basically like Finnish watches are stopping off in Switzerland for like an hour, and then they go back on the plane so they can say it was made in Switzerland when actually it wasn't. And I think that that's something we're kind of struggling with or battling with at the moment about what's actually happening in the UK, what isn't. There isn't a standard for that yet. I believe in watchmaking there is a standard for like when you can actually say something's been made in Switzerland, how much of a percentage of it. Uh, whereas when something is arriving as sheet to our workshop and leaving its glasses, like we, we, there's no questions asked. Obviously, we're very proud of what we do here, but I think there's, there's certain marketing tactics, shall we say, that maybe 
confuse or mislead people as to what's actually happening here. So as one of three, I think it's three companies in the UK that make frames, obviously, whereas not very many of us. But it's just something I wanted to add to that conversation because we were literally having a conversation about it earlier this morning. Strange because Made in the UK has been a major selling Mm. point in recent years. Um, And, I mean, I keep hearing about various dodges for how people are able to put Made in the UK on it. So, I mean, it is interesting to be more transparent about it. I hadn't heard about watches stopping off in in Switzerland for a, a quick break. Yeah, from, from China. Yeah, they, they fly them over. Um, they, they start life and majority of their conception happens in... Excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, the majority of the manufacture happens in um, in in China. They stop off for a a quick break in Switzerland and all of a sudden they can say that they're either have a Swiss movement added or this or that. I'm not, I'm not a watch guy, but yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And I think in light of provenance or, or as they call it here, reshoring where things are actually made, bringing things back to be made in the country, I think that's really important, but there's a lot of people who can get away with that just by avoiding certain conversations or certain terms or words. But the thing is though, we don't, our, 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 our marketing isn't really necessarily based on the fact that we make them here. That's a nice to have. Uh, for me and, and for Lucy, when we're making these frames, it's not we don't sell them because they're made here. People don't buy them because they came from Glasgow. They're buying them because of the way they feel. And I think when you're trying on glasses in a shop or try on our frames, it's only when you get to actually put them on, open them, and you you get to feel the hinge, for example, how that feels. It's like, oh, that's nice. And I think that's how we convince people. That's how people realise that they've they've invested in something that's right. And it's only really something you can experience in person, just like a, a really nice pair of shoes or a jacket, for example. It's only when you actually get to touch it and feel it that you realise, like, oh, that's nice. Like, this is for me. I'm in the right place. Uh, that's 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 really our biggest differentiator. I think that, and also the designs and the shapes. I think. There's people out there who design, there's there's a million and one round black glasses in the world. A pair of round tortoise shell acetate glasses. Like The world doesn't need any more of those. Uh, the same way we don't need any more chairs or lamps. There's plenty of those. But I think the ones that set themselves aside are the ones that fit you well and the ones that feel good and the ones that are going to last because the imitations of the classics will just be forever. Everyone's going to imitate the the Parker jacket, but there's certain people who will do it really well. There's certain people who will make what I believe to be better versions than maybe than the Ray-Ban Wayfarer because that's mass-produced. If you know, it's it just depends on what you're what you're looking for. Mm, you kind of preempted one of my next questions there with how hard it is it to come up with a new frame design. Yeah, reinventing the wheel. I think. Do you know it's it's funny? No one ever, no one actually owns a shape of glasses. They only own the name. So, for example, the Ray Ban Wayfarer is just they, no one can go near that. However, I could make versions of that frame if I wanted to all day, because the shape you just have to change a line, make it slightly thicker, make it thinner, change the height of the frame or the width, and it, it's a different. You can just say it's a different frame. 
where I think that companies like ourselves set ourselves aside is in the construction. It's in the materials. It's in the lenses. Um, it's also in the story. Uh, during lockdown, we, 2020, between March and around about now, September, we couldn't get any acetate from, from Italy, obviously the epicenter of COVID at the time. And we basically couldn't get any material. And because we work as a couple, as you know, as a business, like we could still make frames, but couldn't get materials to, to make them with. So basically we were forced, and this is a concern I had before, was like, how do we make frames if we can't get acetate? So we basically went down the rabbit hole of like formative, I call them plastics. The first kinds of plastics weren't actually the nasty ones. They were the ones that were made with natural materials, just like acetate. So we found this material that had been made all over the world, but the UK had particularly rich history in it. It's called, um, it used to be called uh, Galilith. There's, there's a hundred different trade names for it. And this is made from cow's milk. So like acetate, it's, it's a bio, it's a bio material that can break down. It's a polymer, a biopolymer that, uh, eventually can biodegrade. So we made, we got a hold of some dead stock cow's milk plastic. Uh, so this stuff had, was sitting around dormant for 60 or 70 years. It'd just been lying around. So we managed to find someone who had some of this stuff. It used to be called Erinoid. That's the name, Erinoid. And that was one of the big factories in the UK. But we, the stuff that we bought was from the Galilith factory, which was actually in France. So we were making frames from cow's milk plastic for two months, three months. And we told our audience, our, our subscribers, you know, this, this, this is made from cow's milk. And we sold out. It kept the lights on. And the, the workshop was still working away. Uh, it was good. So that was one of the projects. And then another one we did was um, one of my friends, Chris, from a pen company called Ajoto. He put me, he'd made these pens from this rubber from a factory in Germany. But it, this, it didn't look like rubber. It looked like wood. And it's actually the same rubber they use for mouthpieces for clarinets. It's basically like a a very hard, dense rubber uh, that they just so happen to produce in these very long, thin slabs. And we got a hold of some, and I believe we're the only people to have ever done it, uh, to make it from this natural kind of rubber called ebonite. So that was the COVID survival story, but actually turned out to be really good fun. I can imagine also they were good sellers because I can feel myself thinking, Ooh, I wonder if there's any still left in Well, stock. it's funny you say that. There's a guy from down south who just emailed me. He from Nottingham University and he asked, he, he helped me with the research on this cow's milk plastic because that's his specialism is um, polymers. And he gave me some tips and advice as where I could get it, how, how, it, how it's made. And... Um, he asked me just to, literally, this was two years ago, obviously now, 2022, and he emailed me last week asking if I had any left in stock. And I said, no, they sold out within two days. So I can't, I'm sorry, I can't give you one because he wanted a pair. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a good project. But I think that's where we're wanting to go with, with the types of frames we want to make. I think that acetate's a, a great material. 
will probably always use it. But I think creating story-worthy, interesting, sustainable, and unique frames is has got a lot to a lot to be. It's got a lot to be desired. We we definitely want to uh, pursue that as a company. The cow's milk plastic sounds like what David Courtney of Courtney Buttons was talking about a few episodes ago. Mm -hmm. They were making buttons off from it, and they could also dye it in all sorts of colours. And he also mentioned the sustainability aspect. Of was that it. David from Courtney and Co? Yeah, nice guy, really nice guy. He, we actually had a conversation uh, about Corozo. You know the the nuts they use to make buttons, and um. The diameter of them are really good for making buttons to about, I don't know, an inch wide. They can go quite big. But um, I asked, if they grew big enough, do you think we could make a pair of glasses from them? That was back in 2020 as well, as part of the lockdown project. And he said that unless they were quite small, like really small, you'd struggle to get the diameter to hold a big enough lens, which is a shame. But one of my ideas was, is if we spoke to David and asked him, you know, what if we got a hold of your offcuts from making the buttons and then mixed that with, for example, like a bioresin to make a composite. And then you could use that to make frames. So there's lots of ideas. <laughs> for, for the curious, acetate mm. sounds like some oil-based plastic, but you did mention it wasn't. What is it actually made of? So there's two types of acetate. There's traditional acetate, it's, petro it's got petroleum in it. It's mixed with um, cellulose, which is the proper name for it, cellulose acetate. Cellulose is present in about 95% of plants, or types of plants. It's a, a type of protein, I believe. And basically that creates a compound which allows the other component or components to make a plastic, I'm not a chemist, to form into what's considered a biomaterial. But recently, because of obviously sustainability, our manufacturer and other acetate manufacturers uh, who make the acetate have launched petroleum-free acetates, which is what we use to make our frames. So there's no petroleum in them. And they perform, I would say, I, you would really struggle to tell the difference. I'd have to like point out certain things like smell, for example. Like when we cut acetate, it smells a bit like wine gums, some of them, because of the, the pigments and the colours they use. It's quite nice. Uh, there's other acetates that, um, that are harder than others. M48, the, the, the material, the, the, the bio version of acetate that we use, M49, is just as good. And we've been using that for about three or four years now to make frames. So yeah, it's uh, it's sustainable or more sustainable anyway than the petroleum versions prior. Collaborations, mm. design collaborations, making collaborations. Where are you on that? Yeah, we we go through phases. I think it's a very much a, a case of have a conversation, see what we can both bring to the party. Because I'm a firm believer in the value of the solution or the the outcome should be greater than the two parts on their own prior. You know, if a company can do something that we can't and we can join forces to make something interesting or better, I, I'm all ears because I think collaboration is a good opportunity not only to get in front of new audiences but also to explore what's possible within uh, design and manufacture and that's what gets me out of bed. So 
Uh, we've recently we've done various collabs over the years. Did you see our one with uh, Track, the Glasgow company? I know I know them well. He makes some incredible bags, rucksacks, things like that. Uh, we joined forces. Uh, we've known each other for a long time, and we finally said, you know what, let's do a project together. So we launched a limited range of uh, spectacles and sunglasses with, uh, and he made the the case. But I wouldn't call it a case. I think a case is an understatement. Oh. It's like a really nice pouch for holding the, the sunglasses. So that was a really good project. And it's nice to work with people locally as well. I think from a collaboration perspective, in terms of communication as well as design, having someone who's just on the other side of Glasgow to come round and have, you know, talk about materials and colours and acetates and components. We got to see how the frames sit inside the pouch. We gave uh, our, our feedback on materials, for example, so the lenses didn't get scratched. Uh, you know, it came together really well. It was a really good project. I think I saw you did something Japanese as well, which was kind of a departure from your usual. Yeah, so we... We were for a while pre-COVID. We were wholesaling to various stockists in Japan. I think at one point we had about thirty stockists, and obviously it goes without saying the Japanese are very keen on details, and that played to our strengths a lot as makers. I think they had that appreciation for what we do. Obviously, COVID came along and thwarted all of that so we haven't actually been doing that uh, very much wholesaling ever since but the, the the project you're referring to is with a company called Mamnik from Sheffield who has a sister version of the company in Japan so they trade between Japan and Sheffield uh, with one another shade, like sharing local makers uh, clothing and for example, Sheffield steel knives or cufflinks or bracelets, things like that, they, they sort of coexist across the pond, which is interesting. So we worked with them on a sunglasses frame a few years ago because um, obviously Sheffield, as we all know, very strong powerhouse, very industrial city. And at the time, our frames had these very strong metal temples which for people listening, I, I know I keep using these phrases like temples, that's the, the arms or the legs on the glasses were made of solid metal, which we, which obviously played into Mamnik's. As long as you stay off the puns. Yeah, I know, the puns are never-ending with eyewear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, there's been a few projects. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. I am very curious. You're a two-person company, and you're obviously making lots of frames. How on earth do you find time for everything that is involved in a business today? And I'm not just thinking about the making, the shipping, but the replying to emails, the social media, all of that. It's tough. I think the, the the sexy, glossy answer would be, oh, you know, we just get by, we just manage. But the truth is that it's hard. Um, I'm getting better at not answering emails at two in the morning. I, I, I've I've kind of I've stopped all that. I've tried to be a bit more structured. I think the best 
the best thing though that we ever did was find our our strengths in each other and also recognizing our weaknesses and play and stick into what I believe is the plan. And at the end of the day, we're not. Although we have to be a marketing company that just so that just so happens to sell glasses, I think that we have a really loyal fan base or customer base who invest in what we do. And I think trying to it's it's very tempting to go and try and attract new people. But I think the one thing that I've been shown in my short span of selling eyewear is that finding the right people like for example that customer Tim that I mentioned earlier and giving them the best possible service is what allows us to be more efficient because rather than not that I would be disappointed to attract new customers but I think taking care of who you have and letting them do the talking for you because if you're good enough people will talk about you for you um I think that's probably the best way of answering that. I think, though, the pressures of answering constant messages on social media, email, yeah, I think I think everyone struggles with that. You can, I don't think there's enough people in the world to outsource that or to have like agents answering messages for you. I think that it's a nice problem to have if you can't get through your, all of your customer messages in, in a day. But I think... I don't know, it's a difficult question to answer. I think like juggling, you could call it juggling, but when we need to make frames, like we need to make frames. I think that we our batches of frames are getting bigger, so we can make more at once. So the peaks and the troughs are quite extreme. Like you won't be able to get a hold of me for like two weeks, which can be challenging when I've got things I need to do. People I need to answer, things I need to order, but when I'm not making frames, which now is longer expanses, it allows me to catch up again. So I don't know, for people listening, I think the best way to describe it is like about three or four times a year, you you won't hear, be able to get in touch with me. And I try my best to clear as much space as possible before I do that, before I start making frames, because I know that I won't be able to respond to people. Uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Well, it's interesting to hear that you really see word of mouth organically building your reputation and actually doing it kind of the old way yeah. is the way that works for you. Yeah. Whereas many would have you think that you'd have to be doing a little daily dance on TikTok to even have any chance in today's market. Yeah. Do you know, it's, I, I, I just I genu- I think it's one of the biggest driving forces on a day to day is believing wholeheartedly that if you do good things, good people will come. And I know that sounds quite cliche, but there are people who I consider friends who are my customers that wear my glasses, and they they get it. I, I think it's really I think as a small business owner or even when you're starting out it's really easy to get misled by what the big companies can do and like you can and that's what makes you interesting because there is only one you and it's something I kind of struggled with when I started out because I felt like I had to be everything like a market a marketeer a copywriter a blog writer a frame maker everything but I think something that I took that took me maybe too long to realize is that 
that there is only one you, there is only your story, and no one else can tell that story better than you. And as long as you believe in it, you know, that that's the value. Because if you're making good products and you're d- doing it and delivering that in a good way, take full advantage of it because, you know, like I said, be a speedboat, be nimble. Uh, ocean liners, like big companies, they, they, they take a long time to turn around. And I think that's one of the biggest advantages that I've managed to give myself is that all of the years of learning how to make and, and accumulating the knowledge and the machinery and the skills has allowed me to cater for people who want something unique. And I think that if you're going to try, if anyone's going to try and do something like that, it's worth it because there's a lot of stuff out there that isn't particularly unique or special. And if you can deliver something that's different, you know, it's, it's going to set you aside. Now I did want to ask you about the styling aspect of frames. Occasionally I will wander into one of our local uh, opticians and they always have a resident styling expert. Now I'm not sure whether they actually have any sort of knowledge or skills or (laughs) they just seem to pick a bunch of frames off the shelf and say, try this, try this, try this. Any ideas on that? In terms of style suggestions? Yeah. It depends. I think it's a lot of it's down to personality, but also how you look. For example, there are some people who will just look better in square frames. That's just their thing. But then that doesn't mean you have to wear the square black one. I think that that's the beauty of of eyewear. Not only can you buy rimless or semi-rimless or full rim frames, but there's also the materials themselves. And then on the flip side of that, there are no rules, which makes it a very difficult question to answer because there's a customer... Uh, John, he'll buy a square frame, then a round frame, a thick frame, then a thin frame, because he just loves wearing his glasses. But if I was to give anyone advice on how to buy frames, I think it's really a case of what makes you feel comfortable that you're happy to wear. Maybe not the first one that you choose, because the thing that you probably want to buy is probably the one that is the safest. I think it's landing on a shape, knowing that that works for you and then exploring what the options are. Something that seems to freak people out is when we've got a different colour of front to the side. So the temples don't match the frame front. So we've got uh, what we call like a combination colour frame. It's like a green front with a tortoise side. And people just, oh no, that's, that's too much for me. But then there's other people who are like, can you do it in pink? So it's... I think I think it really does depend, but I think that the main thing is is the fact that you're going to wear this probably for the next two years, or, or unless you're going to have multiple frames. And I think that something that actually re- reflects your personality. There's a guy, one of my old colleagues actually, who used to work with in a pub. He he bought a frame for me, and he said like I would have never bought that frame if you'd never told me to wear it. And I get so many compliments wearing this frame, and it's just like changed. How, or at the time it changed how he felt about himself he always wore these what I considered to be like quite safe glasses and I told him like wear these it'll be okay if you don't like them you can come back we'll sort something out and he says like these are the best things I've ever bought and I think trusting sometimes like it, it, it's like a rapport with a salesperson some people just want to sell you something and then there's other people who actually genuinely want to make you make a difference and I bought a jacket earlier in the year and it was quite a loud, it was like a really bright blue and I wasn't too sure. 
but I love the thing. I can't get out of it. I, I wear it all the time now. And I think the same goes with eyewear. I think you, it is a big deal. You are going to wear it. People are going to see it on your face. But don't forget, like, for example, in our instance, the thick frames that we make, they've been around since the 40s, the 50s. Like, they're mid-century style frames. They are, in my opinion, some of the, the most fashionable looking eyewear you could possibly think of. And I think that people think they're very dominant on their face. But it's a very classic style, so I think go for it is probably my final word on that answer. I think it's quite comparable to wearing a hat, mm. because hats have also been around for a long time, but not many people dare to wear them today. And if you put one on, you feel utterly self-conscious for at least the first 15 minutes, and then you realise it's pretty cool. Of course, a lot of people probably think you're a massive knob, but that's their problem. I disagree. I, th I think there's, it's kind of like the suit. The suit's never had a worse time. I mean, we all work from home now, you know, but why, why, why wouldn't you want a suit? Like wearing a suit feels awesome. It's, it's great. And as for hats, I put that in the same category. I think there's no real reason to wear a hat, but at the same time, there's no reason not to wear a hat. And for example, contrary to my entire career, you could go and get your eyes laser surgery, but people still choose to wear glasses because they just prefer to wear glasses. And I think that it really depends on your 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 your, your choice of style. And I think that hats is a good example because it, it seems somewhat kind of almost forced or stylized, but I really don't think it does because I sell what would be considered the classic black round circular frames worn by Le Cabousier or David Hockney. And... I, I just don't think that frame will ever go out of fashion. I genuinely don't. If you asked a child to draw a pair of glasses, that's what they would draw for a reason. It's like those are the glasses to define all glasses, in my opinion. And I think there's very few people who wouldn't it suit makes that. Makes a lot of sense. You know the comedian Joe Brand. She yeah. wears those. She wears that frame, and she nails it. And it, she goes against all the rules. She's her face shape on paper doesn't suit that frame at all. But when she puts those glasses on, it's like it's perfect. And then you've got someone like me who's got quite like a narrow, long face, and I love that shape of frame as well. And as for hats, I'm gonna I'm gonna start taking up wearing hats now. <laughs> I think hats are due a comeback, and I'm doing my bit for it. But uh, yeah, pretty self conscious at times. I think though. Sorry to go on about hats, but I think though I think there's Liz Truss, our new Prime Minister. I mean, she's she's going against this whole casual, casual Parliament. She wants to bring back like ties, which she wants to get rid of the open collar. And I'm 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 here for that. I think that's a good thing. I think that maybe we've become a bit too casual, and I think maybe it is okay to bring back certain accoutrements, such as the tie or the hat, or even maybe the walking stick or a cane, because you know they came from an era that for people actually considered what they wore. And I think that's an important thing, especially in the context of this podcast. It's about menswear, you know, and I think that there's people out there who want an excuse to wear a pink corduroy suit, and I don't see why that's a problem. I don't see a problem. Well, I do sort of kind of see a problem with a pink corduroy suit, but I'd wear a bottle green one quite happily. <laughs> <laughs> Green, yeah, green's nice. I've got a real obsession with green at the moment, especially with acetate. I think green acetate is so nice. 
sort of nearing the end, Jamie, I have a little bit I'd like to add right at the end, but is there anything you feel that we should have talked about now that we haven't? I think the importance of eyewear from a non-medical perspective, I tried to touch on that earlier without being overly self-promotional. I think that glasses, just like your shoes or, or anything you wear, you know, take pride in that. And I know that not everyone maybe puts as much value on it as maybe I do or, or even more maybe. But I think that especially when you wear it every day, it's the thing you use to see. It's the things that people use to detect you, for example, on the street. Oh, like there's, you know, Nick, for example. It's a real hallmark of who you are. And I think that more people should take more fun in that. I think that it's an exciting thing. And there's people out there, I think, who take a lot of pride in their glasses. And I think that's one of my biggest motivators. I don't know if that necessarily makes a specific point. It's more the fact that I think eyewear can often be overlooked as a, a part of men's style, uh, especially if you don't have to wear it all the time. But I think, as you know, going back to our conversation about hats or suits or, or things like that, I think it can, it can really, it genuinely says a lot about who you are. And I think especially for, as you head towards your 40s, the likelihood of wearing glasses is a lot higher. And that can be quite scary for some people who've never worn them before. I know that'll happen to me, even though I make them for a living. I probably won't have to wear glasses for at least another maybe 10 years, unless I want to. And I think figuring that out can maybe be a bit daunting. But at the same time, I think that, you know, people people listening to this podcast, they'll have worn maybe a particular type of jean for years or a particular type of boot. And I think it's just a case of finding what works for you. So as a general piece of advice, not necessarily just by making the UK frames or Banton frameworks or wire frames, but finding finding what you like and what you don't like, you know, I think that's probably my insight on that. Hmm. I do have the impression that quite a few people don't really put a lot of effort into selecting their eyewear. Mm. And I think it's a shame that there's so many frames that have sort of high-end fashion brand logos emblazoned on them because I think that sort of sways the judgment away from the actual design to what you think people will notice when you wear them. Yeah, not to be... I don't want to sort of speak ill or I tread carefully when I say this, but the likelihood of you buying a frame from your optician because that's where you got your eyes tested is quite high. And then you're kind of subject to what it is they want to stock. And the problem with that is that there might not actually be there, be something there for you, or you feel you have to buy something when you don't. Uh, and that's okay. I mean, in the UK, you're entitled to your prescription and you don't have to buy anything if you don't want to. But ultimately, you know you need new lenses if your eyes have changed. And you're right. I think people are swayed by their kind of... It's like these glittery kiosk style stands of frames and they kind of get shuffled over and get told like you're kind of in this area here, these kind of frames will suit you or fit your face. And I think I think equipping yourself with more knowledge about, for example, what size of frame you need, knowing like, for example, your dimensions is quite helpful. And then also 
not feeling compelled to have to make a decision there and then because you don't. I think exploring the options. I think a lot of people don't realise. I think a lot of people don't realise that you can ask for your prescription, which gives you a whole lot more opportunities for making a purchase elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the things that we it, it still baffles me. There's this sort of like uns, uh, optics is very behind in this department, and when I say department, I mean online optics. It's one of the last few industries, I, in my opinion that hasn't really caught on to the internet, that there's still people who are baffled by the idea of buying glasses online. I, I just, as a young, you know, I'm, I'm 32 years old, I just can't imagine the idea of not being able to buy anything online. But that's slowly changing. I think online optics is unignorable. I suppose a bit like cryptocurrency. It's happening, whether people like it or not. I think that opticians, as much as they want to fight it, don't... Uh, some of them don't like it some of them embraced it they've got online shops themselves and yeah I think that the knowledge and awareness and also the comfort of or being comfortable with what isn't isn't available for example you don't have to keep the frame you've bought online you can return it just like anything else you've got a 14 day cooling off period by law at least in this country you do you don't have to keep it uh that goes for anything you buy. And then the other thing as well is if you know you like a particular kind of frame or shape of frame or size of frame, then you can go anywhere you want to buy it. And then lens fitting, well, that's another story. You can get that fitted by your optician if they're willing to, or you can have it fitted by third-party labs, which is how currently how we operate. We we don't make the lenses. We just fit them to our frames who are made up. They're made off-site. Uh, that's how we operate. And I think the more companies that like us who operate like that, who work like that, the better because the chances of making more interesting things goes up, I think. And I think it balances the scales against companies like Luxottica. Now, that little piece I wanted to interject was you mentioned earlier my restoration of a Jaguar S. Yeah. Uh, and, and compared your endeavours to that. I would like to say that was a 1968 Jaguar S-Type, which I found in an absolutely atrocious condition. It was probably about 25% rusted away. And I had it in my garage, in my workshop, for an entire year before I even touched it. And during that year, I'd occasionally walk into the garage, look at it and think, Jesus Christ, what have I got into? There was nothing good about that car at all. But after a year, I got cracking and I spent seven years getting it roadworthy again, doing everything myself. And that was a rite of passage because I proved to myself that I could actually do it. And when I was finished, I was finished. I haven't seen the car since, which sounds odd, but it was okay. That, um, that's, do you know, one, that was one of the biggest reasons why I brought that up. It sounded kind of creepy because it sounds like I've kind of gone through your sort of, this is my life backstory, but... When I heard that you'd done that with the car, I was like, no, this, this man knows the pain. <laughs> he knows, he knows what it takes to bring something back to life or bring something into life. And I think, um, I think that journey you went through with restoring that car sounded very similar to what I, what we had to do in the formative years of our business. But as a result of it, you've, you grow and you learn and you also have something that's much better than it was before. And, I think you mentioned in that podcast where you spoke about the car that you all, you promised yourself you'd do at least something every single day. 
that was the only way to keep progress going, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's just an analogy for life. I'd just go out, tidy some tools, or I'd spend three hours cutting out metal and welding in fresh metal, but something every day just to keep moving forwards. I, th- I just don't know what's a better lesson for life. Just get a little bit better every single day. I guess so. I guess so. Okay, Jamie, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. You too. It was a pleasure talking with you. Anything quick you'd like to mention just in closing? Uh, yeah, we obviously you can find us at bantonframeworks.co.uk. You can follow us on Instagram. We're recently going through a spate of Instagram reels. We're joining the video bandwagon at the moment. We're letting people see a bit more behind the scenes of how we work. Uh, we've got a new collection coming up in the next few months. So if you're listening to this now, which is September, that should be out maybe earlier, sort of February next year. Uh, always launching new things, but that's launching then. Uh, otherwise, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Bye bye for now. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.